Well, thanks everybody for joining us here at the Neutral Zone podcast. Neutral Zone sponsors this leading amateur hockey website for rankings, news, and scouting reports. We're here today with Mike Johnston, the most accomplished coach in the CHL, head coach and general manager for the Portland Winterhawks of the Western Hockey League. His career spans from the National Hockey League, Hockey Canada, he's a three-time World Cup champion, three-time World Junior champion. And we're going to run through kind of his career, get some behind-the-scenes look at his life and his career and, and ask some questions from, from our scouting staff. So welcome, Mike. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. So you started out at Acadia University, made your way over to Brandon University, which would now be U uh, Sport. I'm guessing it was CIS when you were playing. Exactly, yeah. And what was that experience like? Well, in Nova Scotia at that time, that was before the Halifax Mooseheads came in. So there was no major junior teams in Nova Scotia. So everybody, I played my first university game when I just turned 18. So I was going to Acadia University, played university hockey there for three years. And then a guy, famous NHL coach, Andy Murray, uh, was coaching at Brandon University. And he asked me if I wanted to come out west, finish my degree continued to play hockey in the West. So I went out West, finished my education degree at Brandon University, made a lot of contacts, and then eventually stayed in the West after that. Yeah, because it looks like you went straight from, you had a brief career in Australia, which was interesting. I was saying earlier to you that I thought that meant Austria, but I double-checked and it was actually Australia. And then it looks like you went straight into coaching. Did you always know that was what you wanted to do, or, or was there a stopgap in between? Or It wasn't what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a teacher. So my, I had my teaching degree from Acadia, my education degree from Brandon, and I was looking for a teaching job and there was none available at that time. So I went to Australia on kind of a whim with a buddy of mine who was drafted by the Leafs. He didn't get a contract. So we had heard about teams in Europe. We were trying to get addresses in Austria and Switzerland. And then the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association gave us addresses in Australia. So we decided to send a note to some of these people in Australia and we get, they got back to us right away because we had just finished school. So that's April and their season was starting. So we thought, wow, this is great. We can go down there for the summer play. And we decided to stay for two seasons. But then when I got back, it was a very similar situation with teaching. There were no teaching jobs available. There were a few up in Northern Canada at the time, but Andy Murray, Dave King, who were coaching university of hockey mentioned to me that there was a college team in Alberta, Camrose Lutheran College, that was looking for a coach. So I applied there, and by coincidence, they were looking for somebody with a degree, also somebody who could live in residence, and someone who could coach. Well, I could do the first two, but I had never coached before. I had no coaching experience. They took a flyer on me, and I, and I basically did learn on the fly at Camrose College. That's unbelievable. And are they, I'm not familiar with Camrose Lutheran. Is that part of this new sport now or? No. So they were the Alberta College League, small okay. college with Nate, Sate, Mount Royal. Um, yep. They had Lethbridge at the time. There were, there were a group of small colleges. Two of those colleges have now joined the Youth Sports League, but they still compete in a small college. So there were, there were players that were, or kids are going to school. They were basically their first two or three years of university then they go on to the U of A, University of Saskatchewan, or Calgary to finish their degree. So it was a great opportunity for me to coach. And I often tell the story, my first day on the job, the guy, athletic director at Camero said, well, Mike, the season's approaching in like three months. You need to buy equipment. So you better get into Edmonton and go see our equipment supplier and make sure we've got equipment for the team. Yeah. So we went into Edmonton to a place called United Cycle. And I asked for the manager of the store and the guy came out from the back and the manager of the store was Ken Hitchcock. Oh, and wow. Ken was the manager of the store. He was running United Cycle and he was coaching midget hockey in Sherwood Park. So I met Ken the first day I was on the job and he said to me, you know, you'll probably be looking for players from midget hockey. I run a pretty good program here in Sherwood Park. Let's keep in touch. And so it was great for me to learn from Ken Hitchcock as I was mentored in the first couple of years, which I needed a lot of mentoring uh, to get by and to survive. That's unbelievable. That's a great story. So you you make your way from uh, Lutheran, and I see that you you were assistant coach at U Calgary for a couple of years, and then it looks like you headed back east as a Nova Scotia guy, you headed back to uh, New Brunswick. 
Now, I don't know, was New Brunswick what it is now? I mean, I, from what I hear from U-Sport Hockey, New Brunswick is one of the places to be. It is. It's a premier program. And when I went there, it had struggled for several years. And I went to Calgary to get my master's degree in coaching science. So I felt I needed a master's degree to work at a full university. And you did in those days because they often ask you to teach and then coach. You had to do both things. And when I went to the University of New Brunswick, uh, we had four of my five years. We had really good years. We played Acadia in the finals twice. They won the nationals both those years. So it was a, the start of UNB becoming better. And then Mike Kelly took it over. And then Gardner McDougall took it over. And those guys did a phenomenal job just taking UNB to become what U of A was, the University of Alberta was in the days when I coached, the premier program in Canada for university sports. I always think that U sport is one of the most like hidden gems in the hockey world. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but there's some really good players playing up there. And our, actually our director of uh, Canadian scouting, Marlon Mueller, coached for Guelph, coached for a couple of places, but he won a national championship with Guelph. And he said he, uh, he faced uh, Mike Babcock twice in the national championship, I think when he was at McGill. But anyways, kind of a hidden gem yeah. of the league, I think. Yeah, I think Mike might have been at Lethbridge. I, I remember when Marlon was coaching, and I coached against him. And really, in those days, a lot of major junior players that didn't get an AHL contract, they would go to Canadian universities. So our teams, we went down. I remember when I was coaching at UNB, we went down and played Sean Walsh's great teams at the University of Maine. Yeah. We would go down there and play them. And they beat us two years that we went down. But we also played Harvard, we played Boston, and we were really competitive with those teams, which kind of surprised a lot of American teams because the Canadian League is not as well known. Right. And certainly they don't attract the big crowds, but it's really good hockey. Yeah. So then, then you, it seems like you, you have kind of an interesting coaching track record in the sense that I feel like, and I could be wrong on this, but I feel like a lot of coaches, you know, make their hay and then at the end of their careers, you know, work with USA Hockey or Hockey Canada it looks like you went from New Brunswick and then did a five-year stretch working. It looks like exclusively for Hockey Canada, where you went on this crazy stretch of three world championships, three world junior championships. How'd you go from New Brunswick to Hockey Canada? What was that transition? Well, I was fortunate while I was at New Brunswick that Dave King gave me a chance to coach in the Spangler Cup. So that was my first international coaching experience other than one under 17 team. So I coached in the Spanger Cup because in those days, the Olympic team was run full-time with Hockey Canada with Dave King, and they would prepare for the Olympics. They couldn't go to the Spanger that year, so we put together kind of a B team, and I had the opportunity to coach it. The next year, Dave left the program to go pro, and Tom Rennie took over Hockey Canada's program in preparation for future Olympics, and Tom asked me if I'd come in with him and be an assistant coach. And so they had a full-time program. For four of my five years, we would travel the world, we'd play teams, and the players we had in our team were all just below the NHL level, and they were okay. all ready for the next Olympics. By coincidence, so as we were preparing for the 98 Olympics, the NHL decided to go to the Olympics. And so the year before, the team we had was told that they wouldn't be going to the Olympics, we'd be taking NHL players. So Mark Crawford was chosen to be the head coach. Myself and Andy Murray, who were with the Hockey Canada, were the assistant coaches. And so we were very fortunate to go to the Nagano Olympics with Hockey Canada. And that was my final year with the program. Or actually, I had one more. And then Mark Crawford got the job in Vancouver, and I went to Vancouver with him. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. I was gonna, that was going to be my next question is, how do you go from Hockey Canada to the NHL? Actually, uh, speaking of Mark Crawford, his brother, Mike, is one of our head scouts in uh, Ontario. Does an incredible job, actually. He's a really smart guy. I mean, that, that just sounds like an amazing experience, <laughs> traveling the world and working with some of the best players and Canada has to offer. What was that experience like? Well, it really was. A, it was an amazing coaching opportunity because at the first few years, I traveled with Tom as a head coach, and then he got the job in Vancouver. Andy Murray came in, and he got the job in L.A., and I stayed and ran the program. So I had five full years there. And we had a full-time team, and we would go to the Isvestia tournament. We'd go to the Spanger Cup. We'd go to all of the top European tournaments and represent Canada. So it was really a unique experience because you're coaching against some of the best coaches in the world. 
You're right. learning the international game. The international game in those days wasn't firmly entrenched in the NHL. There weren't as many European players. There wasn't as much influence from international hockey in the NHL. That just started probably in 2000, 2002, 2003, 4, as more NHL players got to go to the Olympics. And then I think they learned quickly, the same as the general managers, that these international players are really good. Right. Look at the, even teams like Germany or Austria or Switzerland. They're very competitive with NHL teams. So there's some good players over there. Plus, their strategy of play was something that we could learn from. And I believe that's when Hockey Canada really took a step with all the information we were bringing back throughout the world of training programs, style of play. It helped grow our programs because we would have coaching clinics. We could talk to people about what we were seeing in Finland, Sweden uh, as we traveled. And for me as a young coach, it was great to travel the world and represent your country in different yeah. places all over. So it was a very unique experience. And then coaching in the first Olympics with, I don't know how many Hall of Famers we had on that Nagano team, but there's probably, out of the 23 players, there's probably 16 Hall of Famers wow. we had on that team. So it was a little bit intimidating when the team was put together and you go out on the ice with some of these guys your first time. And I'm a guy from Nova Scotia, never played in the NHL. And now you're on the ice with some of the best in the game. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. What an experience. If they hadn't gone, do you think, to pro NHL players playing in the Olympics, do you think you would have stayed with Hockey Canada for a longer stint? Or were you ready to kind of move on to a, you know, the NHL? Or Yeah, it's always interesting. I think as coaches, everybody's probably the same. You're all looking at, I was content to stay five years at Camrose. When I went to the University of Brunswick, I stayed five years there. When I went to Hockey Canada, I stayed five years. I liked where I was and I got a lot out of it. But then another opportunity just by coincidence presented itself at that time. And when Mark Crawford was with me with the Olympic team, and then two years later, he gets hired in Vancouver and asked me if I would come with him as he was putting together his coaching staff. It was a great opportunity for me to jump into the NHL with a guy who had already won a Stanley Cup. And, and I think for me in Vancouver in those days, Vancouver was kind of on the rise. They were, they were down here They were with Brian Burke, Dave Nona, Steve Tambellini as the management team. Mark Crawford, myself, the late Jack McElhargy for the coaching staff, we had seven years in the NHL. And I thought that was a phenomenal way to start my career. And I was really fortunate to be able to work for a guy like Brian Burke. He was an amazing guy uh, to work for. Yeah. So what, what's that transition? Like? I mean, you're going from New Brunswick. I mean, I guess working with, with Hockey Canada, you obviously, especially that last Olympic team, you're getting to see some incredible talent, but I got to think it's night and day different going to the NHL with guys who are getting paid and, and dealing with, you know, the best players in the world, or is it you just coach the same way you coached at New Brunswick? Is it, yeah, is it I get asked that or? question a lot. And I think it's common with coaches that people wonder, do you, do you treat people differently? They're paid more money, but they're still the same. Every player on our team here in Portland, they want to be the best they can be. So it's my job to try and get them there. So it doesn't matter if it's an NHL player, like we had, you know, Marcus Naz and Todd Bertuzzi, Morris and Jovanovski. We, we had some really good players in Vancouver. But what I found out quickly is that they were no different than the players I had at New Brunswick. If I could find a way to help them be better, help them have a longer career, they were all ears. They were willing to listen. And you, work, you function differently as an assistant coach versus a head coach. And pretty well my career it, it leans more to the head coaching side, but I've also had some great assistant coaching experiences. And I think they both helped me. So assistant coaching helped me in my head coaching role. And then my head coaching role definitely helped me be an assistant coach because I knew what the players were thinking. I knew some of the things that they need to hear. And you're a little bit closer to the players as an assistant coach. Yeah, and you're known, Mike, in hockey circles as an offensive, you know, your team score a lot of goals, you're, you're a skill guy, at least that's, you know, your reputation for sure. Is that something that you generated, you've always had, or was that something that Hockey Canada influenced, or was that when you went to the NHL, or where did that kind of come from? I think from day one, when I started coaching, I wasn't necessarily a pure offensive player when I played, but when I started to coach, my big thing was, what's the most fun in the game? The most fun in the game is when you have the puck. And then the next biggest thrill is scoring. So I always tried to work on the puck skills of our players and the puck decisions of our players when I first started coaching. I wanted to be a puck possession team, probably long before puck possession teams were even in existence. It was just my style. 
And I mentioned Ken Hitchcock earlier. Ken was a little bit different. So it was really interesting to talk to Ken when I was coming up as a coach and hear his philosophy. And then for me to decide what was I going to take for, from Ken that would make me a better coach. And then what do I feel comfortable with? And I say to coaches, a lot of young coaches, it doesn't matter what identity you have. It matters that you have an identity. That's the most important thing. And yeah, can, your, can your teams play to your identity? And people say your team takes on the coach. I think that's a positive. If my teams can play the way I want them to play and to our identity, then I've done a pretty good job. If it changes all the time, you never know what type of team we're going to have in Portland. That's probably not very good. And you can win, as you saw St. Louis wins with a bigger, grinding, more balanced team. Tampa Bay wins with a little bit more of what I would consider my style of game. Up-tempo, defensemen join the rush, uh, skill, puck possession, that type of thing. Same as Toronto. You can win any way you want, is if you, but the key thing is, can you get your team to play that way night in and night out? And when the road gets rocky and people are criticizing the way you play, can you stick with it? Can you stick with the template? And I give Tampa, John, a lot of credit there, John Cooper, for sticking with it because he received a lot of criticism when they got knocked out of the playoffs for those two years. He right. stuck with it. He said, no, this is how we're going to play. They got a little bit bigger, but they still played the same way, and then they pushed through. So I, my advice to coaches out there is everybody has a style. Teach your style because that's the only way you can run your team. I couldn't run my team another way because that's what I feel is the right way to play. And that's the way I want our team to play. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Kind of going back with your, in the NHL, being an assistant coach. I mean, now you have a, a unique perspective because you're both the general manager and the head coach. So you get to make, you know, decisions from draft picks to, you know, really everything comes through your desk where I'm thinking back to when you're, you know, an NHL assistant coach, you don't have control over who's coming in the door contracts, all that kind of stuff. Would, would that be somewhat of a relief because you can just focus on coaching and you that's your responsibility? Or is it kind of a drag that you don't get influence on some of the other aspects of building the team? Well, I believe the really good organizations are in sync. And I thought when we went to Vancouver with Brian and Steve and Dave Norris, all phenomenal hockey people, that we met together all the time and talked about how we we're going to play and why we were going to play that way and what we needed so as long as Brian was there, we knew that we were going to draft a certain way for the style of play that Mark Crawford wanted to play. We knew that the players that were traded for were Mark Crawford style players. And Mark really loved that up-tempo style. The, the issue comes in sports when a GM is let go or a coach is let go, and then all of a sudden you change course, it takes a while to regroup. It's hard. Right. It's challenging. So when I came to junior the number one reason I wanted to be the GM and coach was to control everything from, as you mentioned, scouting, drafting, players we signed. And so I knew what we wanted because I was going to coach them and put them on the ice. And then I put them on the ice. So we were all in sync from our scouts right through our whole organization. I felt that that was the best way to keep us in sync rather than a coach and a GM battling all the time over You've got to get rid of this guy or this guy's not right. a player. Then you have a push and pull that's not good. And it creates a culture problem. But it's easier to create a culture if people are in sync and people are stable in their jobs. And it's difficult to create a culture if people are hired and fired and there's a lot of transition within organizations. And it's so easy to see in sports, it, it, no matter if it's baseball, basketball, football, hockey, it's the same. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, that's actually one of the questions I was going to ask you later on was there's two unique pieces, I think. One with the Western Hockey League that you're drafting Bantams. Whereas like when I'm talking to OHL GMs, they're, they might need their first and second round pick to help them right away. And they might be drafting for a, an immediate need. Whereas you guys are a year or two years away from even your first round pick playing or having a you know an impactful role. So it's interesting to me on, in the Western League, you almost have to plan a year or two ahead of what your projected needs will be at that time. How do you identify necessarily the, the style of play at the Bantam level where, you know, some kids, you know, haven't really physically developed yet, or sometimes, you know, for me watching Bantams and I go out to the John Reed and the, um, you know, all the big tournaments out in Western Canada, I always have a tough time figuring out, okay, is this kid going to be a power forward in two years? Or is he going to be a, you know, just for me, just from a style perspective, I find it challenging. 
It is challenging for sure. And you need scouts that have an eye for that 14, 15 year old player. But the one thing we tried to do early with our scouts is through video clips and descriptions, we look for four things in a player. So we look for four things, skating, skill, compete, and hockey sense. And over time, hockey sense is the decider, 100%. Okay. So I decided after drafting all these different players that hockey sense is the number one thing that I need to know. So that'll, that'll break the tie all the time. The second one would be compete, and then we go skill and skating. I was always a big believer in skating, but Daniel and Henrik Sedin taught me that hockey sense is the ultimate. Yeah, right, right. Good sense, example. If you have hockey sense, you can become a phenomenal player. And, and Henrik wasn't a great skater, but he was a phenomenal player because he was one step ahead of the game, and he had a winger who was in, in sync with him all the time and Daniel. And I, and I think that if your scouts know what you're looking for, we never talk about size. Because, as you know, when you're watching the John Reed tournament, you don't know if a guy who's six feet tall has stopped growing right. or the guy at five feet four is going to grow. You never really know. Yeah, you can look at their parents and you can check a few of these things out. So the one thing we do on our scouts call, we never talk about size. Interesting. Never talk about size. We talk about all the other things because I don't really care if the guy gets to 5'10 or 5'11. If he has phenomenal hockey sense and he has compete, I can do a lot with him. And our coaches can do a lot with him. And so those are keys for our scouts. And it's so easy to get caught up in size with young kids because the big guy looks better. Right, right. At that age. But what does he look better at? Is Can he make plays? Or is it just because he's big, he overpowers kids? So we're almost to the point where we steer away from those early developing kids and tend to go to more other kids that show potential. Yeah, no, that's that's actually, we, we do try to do the same thing on our end. We try to do analytics at the end of every, you know, two years, three years and see what guys are right on, what guys are off on. And we try to find patterns. And I, I agree with you, the early developed players are sometimes trick you. They, they look better than they actually are. Just what you said, they, they just overpower their opponents. They're not necessarily better. They're just bigger and stronger. So this is one of the questions I was really wanted to ask you because I ask this question when I'm in the ranks, when I'm talking to GMs and coaches, and I get a different answer. So a GM and a coach, I'd be curious on yours. If I was to grade a player in three games and I gave the kid an A plus, a B minus, and a B, that's player one. And then the second player, I give a B plus, B plus, B plus. I find the coaches tend to move the B plus because they know what they're getting. And the GMs I talk to want the kid that showed the A plus because they know what he's capable of. And I always feel like there's a little bit of a difference in the GM and the coach, the way they look at a player from a scouting perspective. Where would you lean on that? Would you go for the potential or the consistency? I would definitely lean for the potential because I, I want to know what a player's top end is. And then it's our job. I'm fortunate that I am the coach too, that it's our job as coaches to get them there. But if I know what his top end is, I want the top end guy because I know his ceiling's higher. And if he showed even glimpses of, we call five out of five hockey sense, if he shows just glimpses, I know that potential's there to, to get him to an elite level. And for me as a GM or coach, I, I'd want that player that has a higher ceiling. Yeah, interesting. Now, what about if you're watching uh, a player, you're looking at how the draft unwinds and, and say, Portland is known as, as a speed, skill, hockey sense team. Sounds like from talking to you that that's very purposeful. But what if the the best power forward, slow, kind of direct, maybe not a high hockey IQ, but a high compete, he's on the board and he's high on your list. How much do you factor in his grade, like overall ability versus the fit on your team? Is is fit more important or is the, the best player on the board mentality? We rate every player regardless of size on those categories. The one factor we give our scouts, which is a little bit of leeway, is we call it, you know, want. And we just describe it as want. And it, it can be anything. If We have the four categories. So you have a score out of 20 because you can get five, maximum of five on those four categories. Compete, skill, skating, hockey sense. Then we have a fifth category, want. So if a scout says... I love this guy because he has high-end character 
or I love this guy because he plays a competitive power forward game. I'd want him on my team. So that's where the scout has some leeway that he could say that this player, I definitely want him on my team. And he has to give a descriptor as to why he wants him so bad. And, and so power forward could fall into that leadership, uh, positive energy guy, all those factors can fall into that category. And those factors, for me, I often look at that. When I see the scouts report, I look to see how bad does that scout want them? Because it's interesting, probably the same for you, but when, when you guys have your meetings and you're talking about players, a guy will talk about player A, player B, and all of a sudden he gets to a player and he goes, oh yeah, this guy, I love this guy. Yeah, yeah, for but, sure. And, oh, he's, he's this or he's that. And you can hear the scout, like he picks up his voice, he gets excited. All of a sudden for me, maybe I haven't even seen the guy, I say, well, that guy, that's the guy I want too. If you get that excited about him, then that's the guy I want to. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Like I, that's one of the things that for me is kind of a scouting director. I go around North America and I'll I don't know a lot about the player. I know a little bit about a lot of players because I'm, I'm covering all of North America, and I have to lean on the scout, the local scout that's seen him ten times. But I'm always in this difficult position where I might go to the game and the kid doesn't play well, and I don't really like him. But the local guy who's seen him a lot loves him. And I'm still trying to figure out that balance of obviously I wouldn't hire a guy I don't trust, but I also have to go by what I see. And like, how do you balance that with, you know, you go into tournaments and you're coaching the team. And so you go to John Reed, let's say, and this guy's seen him seven times. You're only seeing him once, but he doesn't pass the test for you. How do you balance that in your final decision-making? Well, it's challenging. And and you're definitely bang on because sometimes I can mess up a draft because of that. I've only seen the guy twice. I didn't really like him. The scout is going to bat for him. So what we do in Portland is in early rounds, I will overrule. I think a lot of NHL teams do that too. If he's a first or second round pick, I'll overrule. I'll, I'll go with my gut and what I've seen and, and also go with what the scouts told me. But in, in three, four, five, six, seven to 10 in our, in our draft, the scout has the say. So if he, if he believes in him, I'll go with the scout. No problem. But I, on the first and second rounders, I just, yeah, I, I have to feel good about it. So they have to convince me. It's much more, it's much easier now with Instat and right, like right. to pull up shifts on a kid. Five years ago, you didn't have that. Right. No, I may, no, totally. I may only see the guy twice, like you're saying, John Reed. And then the scout tells me he's way better than what I saw. We'll have a debate about it. I'll probably win for the early rounds and they're going to win for the later rounds. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good way to do it. Like when you were in the NHL and then when you were a head coach in the NHL, one of the questions we get asked is in regards to NHL draft picks, as a head coach, do you factor in like a training camp or when you're picking lines and putting guys together where these players are drafted or by the time they get to you, is it just, I don't care, I'm playing the best guys. And how much does that factor in as a first round pick versus a fourth round pick? I think it factors in for management, but most of the coaches I've been with and when I was in Pittsburgh, you're picking the best team. I think for general managers, there will be some general managers that'll want patience with young guys. They'll say, well, I know you like them. We love them, but we think he needs to go back to junior or back to college or play in the American League for a year. Let's not rush him. And so that's the one challenge you'll get as a coach at the NHL level is how quickly you're rushing a young guy and whether it makes sense and some organizations are patient. Other organizations put the kid in right away. But other than that, I think right from day one in Vancouver and when I was in Pittsburgh, the head coach has a call on players. If he wants it, the general manager is going to go with it for the most part. So from you know, when you left Pittsburgh, leaving there, I mean, I'm sure you had a lot of options. What, what made you go back to Portland? I mean, you had been to Portland before, and it seems like an interesting step to go from head coach in the NHL to the Western League. And I'm guessing that was by design. So what was kind of your reason, rationale to come back to the younger players? Like, do you enjoy coaching the youth players as opposed to the older guys? Or does it not matter to you? I enjoy coaching. But yeah, uh, the answer to the question was, I felt if I was an assistant at the NHL level, I wouldn't have enough to do for me. I just, I felt I'd been an assistant for eight years, been a head coach for one and a half. 
And being an assistant coach at the NHL level, it's phenomenal. Like you're working with the best athletes, you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. But I grew up as a pure coach. When I coached at Camrose at the University of New Brunswick, I was the strength coach, I was the coach, I was a sports psychologist, I did everything. Here in Portland, I have some Don Hay and Brian Pellerin now, and I had Kyle Gustafson with me, I had some great assistants. But you do, as a coach in the Western Hockey League, they're 16 year old kids to 20, you do everything from off-ice monitoring to help them mature and develop as people, to reviewing their schooling, to coaching them in skills, coaching them in structure. So I just found it's a pure coaching environment. Like I love junior hockey because it's very pure. You have your players, they don't get called up, they don't go down. It's not like the American League where you lose your players every once in a while and, and you have to juggle things. I just feel it's the best coaching environment for pure coaches to learn and develop and to have hands-on with your players every single day. And you get to take them from 16 and see if you can make them into a pro. And you know how the kids are. That's their lifelong dream for all of us to try and get to the NHL. And if we can help our kids get to the NHL, and we've had just over 40 players in the 10 or 11 years since I've been here, just over 40 players sign NHL deals. So 40 players have provided an opportunity to have a chance to live their dream, which is thrilling for us as coaches. Oh, yeah, that's that's unbelievable. You go to the draft and you, you sit there, you're like a parent because they're your kids. You've been with them for when they were young guys, and now you see them as mature, you know, young adults and going on into pro hockey. Mike, is that how you would judge success in the Western League and in the CHL in general through, you know, draft picks or – is it more that, or is it more the win-loss record, championships? Like, how would you personally view success? Well, the one thing we do, which is interesting for a lot of coaches, is we don't put standings in our dressing room at our level. So I don't want the standings in the room. We'll talk about the standings late February, maybe. We don't worry about it, because I don't want our team to focus on, well, this weekend we have to beat Spokane. Well, yeah, maybe to get two points above them or to give us a cushion or they're chasing us. But what's more important is what are we doing individually and what are we doing as a team to get better? Right up until the end of February, we're focused on you getting better as a player, our team getting better. And then what you find is the wins will take care of themselves. So our goal as coaches is to get players drafted to recruit and draft really good players that can play here. And they all go hand in hand. If we get players drafted, it's easier to recruit. If we recruit good players and we get players drafted, we're probably going to win. Or else you better blame the coaching staff if we don't. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a cycle, but we do not focus on the win. And it's hard not to because you're so, it's so ingrained in players and coaches. We want to win. We're determined to win. But there's some nights we play a phenomenal game. I just love our game. I know we're going to be good and we lose. And there's other nights where we lose and I'm really concerned about why we lost. Do you feel like there's, I talked to um, James Boyd for Ottawa right. and he was telling me sometimes in a draft, you know, he might have a team that's talking to him up and down about a particular player they're looking to draft. And he's like, there's other times where they don't really reach out much at all. I'm curious if there's been drafts where you've sat there, you know, not to mention any names, but has there been times where you've thought on both ends of the spectrum of, geez, this kid, you guys are really missing something on this kid, or someone goes pretty high and you're going, gee, I don't know if, if he's worth that high of a pick, but, you know, good for him. That always happens, I think. And when I was at the NHL level, it happens. And when you're at junior level, you look around, you know the Western League really well. We know the league and you're surprised by picks. But the one thing that I, I'm very aware of is every team has a different idea of what their list is based on what they need, what they believe in is important for their identity, their culture. And I know NHL teams do their research. That's one thing they do. They, they interview players. They talk to our academic advisor. They talk to our billets. They dig in and they do a lot of work on players. And we often bring, if there's an NHL scout in Portland and they're staying overnight, We'll invite them to come to practice and talk to our players about what they look for because it's very good education for players and parents as much as we can to hear what NHL scouts really look for in a game. It's not if you're on the power play. It's not if you've got three goals. It's what do you do in the game? What do you do in the game that the Pittsburgh Penguins identify as keys for them to be a good team or Los Angeles Kings? 
but what do you do in a game? And so many players, I tell players, you could have three shifts in a game and the NHL player, he doesn't care. He just rates you on those three shifts. What type of player were you based on the criteria for his team? And parents and kids get caught up in that from bantam age on. They think, hey, I've got to be on the power player. Else I'm not going to get to the Western League. I'm not going to get to the NHL. Well, maybe that may be the case, but most scouts at our level and at the NHL level, they view the game totally different than the way parents and kids think they do. Yeah, I totally agree with that point. How does that play into like, from your perspective on coaching, if you know you've got a player who's a bubble draft pick or they're there to watch, does that change any of your mindset on like, oh, I got to get this kid on some shifts or do you just have to, you have to coach your team the way it's meant to coach. You can't worry about who's in the stands or how does that factor in? Yeah, I don't really worry about it. I'm a big four line team guy. I like to play four lines. And as I said to our players just the other day in a meeting, if I play four lines in a night and there's five penalties on each team, then there's 40 minutes of ice time for those four lines. So you're going to get 10 minutes if I balance the lines up. Where you're going to get extra time is if you can make the power play units or you can be on the penalty kill, then you'll get extra ice time. But I like to play four lines. The other thing at the junior level that I really like to do is to play young kids with veterans so that they get confidence and experience. The quicker I can allow young players to feel good in the league, feel confident about their game, the longer term I'm going to get better production out of them. And so we're all about introducing young kids in the right way to the game. They've got to earn their ice time, but I need to protect them when we bring them into the Western League because it's very tough. They're playing against the best players in the world. It's a tough environment. So how you handle them on the ice, how you handle them off the ice is critical to your team's long-term success. I think that's one of the things that intrigues me with the Western League specifically, as opposed to, say, the OHL and the Q. Like, I think the OHL is really skilled and fast, but the Western League's got a physical element that's unique to the other leagues. And you see rookies in the league that they might not get a lot of points or they might not be on those special teams, but then sometimes second-year players or third-year players, they take a big jump. Is that something that you see when they're a rookie of saying, oh, I'm pretty confident year two, he's going to make the jump? Or are you somewhat surprised sometimes when they make that? I know from a scouting perspective, I sit there and go, wow, that kid really improved this past year. But is that something you kind of saw all along? Well, it's hard to play in the league at 16. And I always say to players, the reason you're here at 16 is so you can have a great year at 17. And so we do expect them to pop at 17, take off. And so many times you see a player go from three, five, six goals to the 16-year-old, and then all of a sudden they're at 20, 22 goals. You know, it's amazing. And in our league, the one thing we do do, and it's hard for young kids to play in the USHL, the BC Junior League, North American League, but in our league, almost every team would have at least two 16-year-olds each year. We've often had three, sometimes four. And the reason we do that is so that they can have a great year at 17. They're prepared. They feel comfortable. They know their teammates. They know the league. But you've got to be careful in how you bring them in. It's much like an NHL player. If they come in and they lose their confidence in the first two years, where are they going to be in year three? Probably the American League. In our league, they might even be out of the league if they lose their confidence. So you want to try to bring young kids in so you can give them experience, but you have to protect them and give them quality experience. They feel good about their game. You just can't play three 16-year-olds on a line or else they're really going to struggle. Yeah, no, for sure. Is, is that a message throughout the whole organization? Because something I've found with you, Mike, at, at Portland, it seems like you not only coaching the players, but you also seems to be coaching your staff. Because two of the guys I respect as much as anybody in, in the scouting world are Eric Fink, who worked for you in Portland now with Carolina Hurricanes, and Josh Dye, who worked with you at Portland and now is with Tampa Bay Lightning. How much of this is built into the culture of the whole program? I believe that when kids come to Portland, that they believe they're going to be a pro. People will say, well, do you ever tell them that it's really hard and only 10% of them are ever going to make it? No, I never do. Because I believe they're going to be a pro and I want them to believe it until they leave here. Because I'm surprised that some guys take off. But it's the same thing with staff. We had Matt Barbsey leave here and be the GM in Kamloops, did a phenomenal job. Gary Davidson left here, went to Everett as a GM, phenomenal job. Grant Armstrong is another scout who left and now works with Tampa Bay with Josh Dye. Eric Fink, as you mentioned. So we've had several people and hopefully our staff believes that. Hopefully it's a launching pad for our scouts, for our management. And then Kyle Gustafson and Travis Green are both with Vancouver. So as a coach, 
Uh, Carl Taylor is the head coach of the American League with Nashville, was an assistant with Kyle and myself. So we want our staff to have the same aspirations to be a pro. And I love that part of our culture is that, and maybe you say, oh, well, you, everybody can't believe they're going to be a pro because they're not going to be it. But if you believe you're going to be it, more guys will be pros. And so I love, I love that part of it. The guys come here and they think, hey, I'm going to find a way to get to the NHL. I love that. That's awesome. I'm intrigued. I think everyone's probably intrigued of coaching players like Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, guys that you've coached at Team Canada, like the really special players. Is that really rewarding for a coach or is it, does it not matter? Is it coaching is coaching? It doesn't really matter who the player is. Well, the one thing is, is that the great players, if you step back and really watch what they do, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, I'll go to a guy like Crosby. I remember that after the first year in Pittsburgh in the summer, I was asking Sid what he was doing for summer training. He said, well, I'm doing this, this, and this. And then in August, I'm going to go to Denver, and I'm going to go to altitude and train for three weeks at altitude. Then I'm going to go back to Pittsburgh and get ready for camp. And the detail in his training and his preparation, like he felt training at altitude would help him have a good start to his season. But every little detail and what he ate, how he prepared, and little examples, if he had a tough night on the ice, he missed a goal, missed a shot, you would see him, he would get Rick talking to go out early for practice, and Rick would work with Sid on that specific thing. And he would do it over and over and over again. And the great players, it's really a treat from a person like myself, and I'm sure other coaches to be around those guys, because you're always learning and the best way to learn is to watch what the great players do. And I remember in the Olympics, when I went to the Olympics, you know, I was working with Andy Murray on the power play. And Andy said, well, go talk to Wayne Gretzky, because he's playing the flanker side on the power play. And it's a wider ice surface because of the international ice surface. He's not using it. Go talk to him. So, you know, as a young guy, I'm going over to talk to Wayne about how to play yeah. on the power play. And I'm thinking... But as soon as I mentioned it to him, he said, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, you know, I'm not used to the big ice surface. I can use it better. And, and it really hit me there that, you know, these guys pick up things so fast. The wear and the detail in their game and how they handle themselves, it's a treat. And I was fortunate in Pittsburgh because I had four unique individuals. I had Malcolm Crosby, and then I had Latang, and I had Fleury. Yeah. Very, four unique people all, you know, you step back and watch each of them and you can learn so much. From but then you're there to coach them. So it's a, kind of a balancing act. Yeah, you're learning from them and you're aware, but you have to learn from the great players or else you're not going to be a very good coach. I feel like it's a different, you know, I, I, the rewards are probably different in the sense that, and I'm just assuming you'd, you'd obviously know, but in the Western League, you probably see the light go off on some of these guys, especially these younger guys. And like you talked about when they go from 16 to 17, and you're very much a part of that development curve where I'm wondering when you work with a guy like Crosby, as much fun that must be to see what he does. Yeah. He's already an accomplished player and you're like managing, trying to make him even better than he already is. I'm wondering, is it more rewarding with the younger guys with the light going off? Or is it seeing somebody like Crosby and the amazing things that he does, as you alluded to, or I, I, I'm guessing it's probably both, right? They're both rewarding. Well, they are, but with the pro guys, you can do so much more with them because they pick up things fast. Right, right. They pick up things fast. They see the game at a different level. You can do a lot more with them. So you can fast track a lot of things with most of those pro guys that you wouldn't be able to with juniors. Juniors, you have to slow it down. You have to really dig in on the teaching side of things. At the pro level, it's about managing the team because at the pro level, as you know, nowadays talking to NHL coaches, there's very little practice time. After my second year in Vancouver, I remember saying to Brian Burke, I said, the one thing I've learned as a coach is I have to get everything done before December 1st. If we don't have all our teaching done, all our structure on the power play, the way we want to play, all the little details by December 1st, there's no practice time after that. It's all about rest. It's about getting ready for the tough schedule. It's about the grind of travel. At the junior level, you can go a little bit harder, a little bit longer, because fatigue, yeah, that's important, but it's more important that by the time you hit March, that the player's skill level has gone to here and their game has gone to here than it is if they're tired for a weekend's game. Is it tough, Mike, at managing some of those, you know, you mentioned those four special players with Pittsburgh. I, I feel like hockey is a little different because people in hockey don't seem to have the ego in some of the other sports. But I listened to a podcast where someone said in the NFL, he said uh, the quarterback and him had a tough relationship. And he said the quarterback was making five times what he was making as a head coach. 
And he said the jersey sales and everything else, like not that the quarterback told him to mess off, but is that a difficult relationship given the, the economics of it and the, the professional side of it where I, I would feel like in junior, that's not even a consideration. But in junior, to be very honest, we have the same personalities that an NHL team has. They're just at a junior uh, level. Yep. So there's all those personalities in the room. The same in Pittsburgh, LA, or Vancouver, where I've coached, there's different personalities. So the number one thing you have to do as a coach is get to know your players and get to know how to coach them. And I think it's really important as a coach to figure that out as quick as you can. Every player is a little bit different in how you want to coach them. And so for me, at the junior level, we do a lot of team building things early in the year so I can get a feel for the player's personality and how they react to things and how, how I should best coach them. And I think at the NHL level, you don't have as much time with your guys, but it's important you speed up that process because every player is a little bit different in how you need to handle them. Do you feel like with, I guess, with that being said, when you're dealing with practices, practice planning, difference between NHL, Hockey Canada, and where you are now, you, you alluded to, you kind of slow it down a little more. There's more teaching. So are you designing practices differently in the Western League than you were in the National Hockey League? Yeah, at the, at the Western League level, the way we structure our day is our players go to school in the morning, and then we then we work out, have lunch, and then in the afternoon we do a half hour of skills, and then about an hour, 15 of practice, high tempo. At the end of practice, guys will stay out and do a little bit extra. At the NHL level, it's much different. Normally at the NHL level, players would come in in the morning and do a little video session. They would do some stretching, getting ready for practice. Practice would be maybe 15 minutes, and then they would do a workout depending on, on how many games they're playing that week. So it's a much different schedule. You really get to work on the finer details with junior players. At the NHL level, you're working on the kind of the structure of play for your team. And you could call it systems play, but it's more structure of play for your team. Okay. Would it be fair to say that what you're doing in Portland has obviously a team element, but there's a lot of player individual player development? For sure. Yeah, for the defense, the forwards, we're fortunate here that we have Andy Moe working with our goaltenders. So Andy works with the, the goaltenders on individual skills all the time. We work with our defense. We have a progression that we try and build up as the players get older of things that they're trying and trying to work on. As they get more experience in the league, they're more accomplished in certain skill areas. But you do do a little bit more. And meeting time, what we've tried to do with our meetings at this age is a lot more six or seven defensemen in a meeting and have it banter back and forth and discussions, a forward line in a meeting, small groups. And I know the NHL has gone that way as well. So the meetings aren't as much about the team. They're more about trying to break it down into small groups and get more interaction, more feedback from the players, what they're seeing, how they're feeling, why they did a certain thing. And we have more time to do that at our level. At the NHL level, you don't have as much time, but the NHL meetings are definitely trending in that direction. Smaller groups, individuals, uh, more feedback from players, a two-way street as far as the meetings go. And it was interesting when I was in Pittsburgh, I went to watch the Steelers practice whenever I could. And Mike Tomlin was really good that we could go into the group meetings. And so uh, Rick Tockett, myself, uh, Rick went into a couple of meetings I went in a few more. I went in with the quarterbacks and receivers. Then I went in with the defensive ends. In those meetings, it gets, football is much different. They were 40 minutes. Coach directed the whole meeting. You wow. better be here. You better be there. Why did you do this? You got to do that. Hockey is transitioned a little bit different, I would say, from knowing most of the coaches in the NHL and the way hockey meetings are going. But football is still more in that mentality of larger groups, coach-directed, and very specific on what they're doing in that game. But maybe football is a little bit like that because of the – and I'm a big football guy. I love football. Is more where the ball is set. And some right, every play is its own. more dynamic, yeah. Right. Every, every play is its own structure, stop, start. Yeah. That, so how much would you say right now with Portland, like how much video are you doing with the players? Is that a big part of your coaching? We'll do daily video. It okay. might, maybe not with everybody. It might be some one-on-one. -on -one. I'll ask Don or Brian Pellerin to take guys in one-on-one -on -one, or we'll do some small group. Usually what I do is when we play a game on say Friday night, Saturday morning, I'll do a game review. So I always do the game review and Brian and Don will do power play penalty kill. And then my game review could be systems, 
It could be a strategy. It could be compete. It could be, there's a theme to each of the game reviews based on how we play. So it's a lot of teaching, but I, I want to hear what the players are seeing and thinking when they, when they do it. So we'll do a video and say, okay, what happened here? What do you see? And the player will say, well, we could have made this play to this play. And so we really want that banter back and forth. So uh, sometimes I'll ask a player, and he's not in the clip. I'll say, I want you to evaluate this clip. So I show the clip for five seconds. And I say, did you like what you saw? And he'll go, yeah, I really liked it. Our forecheck was great. We got in the first guy. Or he'll say, mm, I didn't like our change. I didn't like the way we got on top of the guy. We missed our check. And so it's really good when the players can evaluate and not take pot shots at other guys, but still evaluate what they're seeing. And that's where meetings have got to now. And I really like it because it's good because I want players that can think the game. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I like the, the fact that it's a two-way streak there because the video meetings I've always been a part of is basically the coach telling you what you did well or what you didn't do well. And you take notes and you leave and it's, you know, it's productive, but no one ever asked for my feedback when I was playing. I can tell you that. Now, Portland, you've obviously, you've gone through some changes, you have new ownership. You guys just went through kind of a crazy COVID year. I'm sure you guys are really excited to get things going. The influence of the Seattle Kraken, is that going to be a help to Portland and kind of the fan base and, and whatnot, or will that detract from your fan base? I think it's going to help a lot. If you look at even Vegas coming in, you look at the teams on the West Coast now, and with Seattle, you go Seattle, Vancouver, then you go San Jose, Vegas, and you go down Anaheim, LA, Arizona. So you, you've got a lot of teams in the West, and Seattle is only two and a half hours from us. So it, it will influence, more importantly, not our crowds, probably a little bit, but what I want to see is I want to see more kids playing the game and I want to see more facilities being built. And right now you're seeing it in the state of Washington, a lot more facilities being built in the state of Oregon. We need that. We only have two facilities besides our rink in Portland for a city of almost 1.67 million people. We need more facilities. There's a lot of kids that want to play. We have a huge adult league contingent here, but we just need more people playing the game. And you hate to turn away. We run a youth hockey group at a rink here that we lease, and you're turning kids away all the time that want to play the game of hockey because we don't have facilities. So that's how I believe the Kraken will influence hockey in the Pacific Northwest. More and more young kids will want to play the game when they see it. And I've heard it's up in Seattle. They have a huge waiting list for tickets. The excitement around the team is enormous. I think it's going to be great for the game. Yeah. Just a couple last questions here. And thanks again for your time. Like this has been a, a real treat. I ask our scouts, I'll say, Hey, we got so-and-so and some of the questions that they ask and Portland has done, according to one of our scouts, I have checked the analytics has said that you guys have had the best track record in the Western league over the last 10 years with drafting and developing American born players. What's been your strategy there in terms of both attracting American players? I know in like places like Minnesota, it's gotta be tough that's a strong college market, but you've gotten guys from Texas. You've gotten guys from Colorado, from Minnesota. What do you attribute that to? I came in here with Travis Green. So Travis was living in Anaheim and he had just retired from playing in the NHL. So I asked Travis if he would come in to Portland and be my assistant coach if I got the job and our owner bought the team and that happened. So Travis knew the California market. And one thing we realized when we came into the Western League, we said, there's not a lot of Americans playing in this league. Right. We're an American-based team. Why don't we put an emphasis on scouting U.S. kids? Why don't we draft more kids than other teams do? And even if we get one out of every three, four, or five American kids, we're getting good players because there's a lot of good players, like you say, in Minnesota. And there still is a lot of players coming out of California. Now it's Colorado, it's Arizona. More and more markets are opening up. So we put an emphasis on it right away. But what happened was, is we would draft or list eight to 10 American players and get one. Yep. And people would say, oh, Portland has a lot of American players. Well, the odds are if you tend to draft more than any other team, you're probably going to get more. But we really worked hard on recruiting the players and never negatively recruiting because there's some phenomenal college programs that... I say to a player, if it's 16, 17, you could go to Denver, Michigan, all these great programs, Minnesota, flip a coin. Well, the challenge is you can't go there until you're 18 or 19. So where right. you can play in between. There's no better place in Portland to play first. 
If you're ready for the Western League at 16, 17, there's no better place to play. I think the world of the college programs, a lot of college coaches are friends of mine. And we just talked about Portland when we recruited and we tried to sell them on our program. And we had success, but again, we drafted and listed a lot of American players. It's a challenge because especially in a market like Minnesota, the kids are ingrained, play high school, now maybe USHL, and then go to college. It's just ingrained in them. Much like right. a Saskatchewan kid probably thinks of the Western League. And so it's very difficult. But Minnesota, they have great hockey players and a lot of them. So if we can just get one or two, I'm happy having one or two every year on our team. Yeah, for sure. And you guys have done that. One of our scouts was curious, after a game, if you're talking to an NHL scout or a GM and he's giving you feedback on what he thinks of a particular player of yours, might even be, I'm hearing more and more that sometimes they're asking coaches about players they played against, guys on the other team. But for the players on your team, the question is, do you give that feedback back to the player? Or is that something you kind of keep aside because you don't want to throw too much at them? Or maybe you don't agree with that particular scout and you don't want to get that in his head? Or how does that communication work? Uh, with usually, the- yeah, usually with the NHL guys, what happens now is they'll send me a note if we're on the road or we're at home. And if they're staying overnight, they'll say, can I come by after the game or tomorrow morning and see this player or that player and spend 10 minutes with them and get to know them? And so they'll normally do that first and then they'll talk to the coaches about what they think about the player but uh, I find that so many teams now are digging into their interviews early in the year so they get a feel for the kids what they're like and get to know them personally off the ice but I like our players to see NHL guys around, whether it's development coaches coming in to work with the guys on our team they've already drafted, or it's interviews with young guys, or they're just coming into the office to talk to the coaches. And as much as possible, I try and use them as resources to talk to our team whenever they can. It's great for the kids to learn what do NHL players do that have longevity. And a lot of the scouts that are coming in played the game. So it's nice to, for them to deal with what they did as a player and now that what they're doing as a scout. But um, certainly having those NHL guys around, it just creates a, another piece for our players to say, hey, you know, there is a chance I can become a pro. There's guys in the stands here tonight watching me play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So and that kind of parlays perfectly into the next question, which is how much are you involved? Because you guys draft Bantams a year younger than the other CHL leagues. How involved are you in after you draft a player to his development prior to coming to you guys? And then the second part would be for the guys that were drafted in the National Hockey League. And I'm sure it depends team to team, but how involved are, are those teams and following their players that are on your team? Our scouts primarily watch the kids that we draft. So what I try and do within a month outside of the COVID year, within a month after we draft them, I want to go meet the player at his house. Talk to the the player about our team. So I always do that. I go meet with the player and his parents. Sit around the kitchen table, talk about Portland, talk about the Western League, talk about choices that they're going to have to make because they have a son who's an elite player. And then I think it's, you know, on the other side, the one thing that's changed at the NHL level is every team now is two or three development coaches. They never used to have development coaches. So they will come around. So we have five or six players in our team that have been drafted. We have 10 players going to NHL camps this week. So the development coaches will come in during the year. And I always invite them on the ice if they're in or have time to take the player to dinner and connect with them. But these development coaches are really good for the young guys because they connect the player to the organization. So say, for example, Detroit has drafted Cross Hannes with a second round pick two years ago. And Cross is a 19-year-old with us this year. What I like to do is get feedback from Detroit after they've seen him at camp and come up with a strategy to get him to the NHL. So between Detroit and us, we want to be on the same page. And they'll often say, well, what are you telling them? And I often say, well, I'm sure we're telling them the same thing. We know the player. And then we come to an agreement of these are five or six things that Cross Hannes has to do to get to the NHL. So we know it in Portland. They know it in Detroit. We communicate. And when their development guys come in, now there's a checklist that we can go off of, of how's he doing here? How's he doing there? And then the team can connect with the player. I just think the NHL, that's been a big step from years ago when players would say to me, I don't know what my NHL team wants. I say, have you talked to them? And they say, no, we had training camp and I haven't heard from them in a year. But now with development coaches, there's great communication between the NHL team, the player, and their junior team, or I'm sure their college team. 
I didn't realize that it was that in depth. I mean, that's credit to you for letting them on the ice. I bet there's some teams that might think that there's conflicting messages there and maybe would be hesitant to do that. But I think that's awesome. That's great for the players too. Obviously they very clear of what it's going to take for them to get to the next level. Well, it's great for the players, but it's also great for his teammates because it's nice for them to have the development guy from Detroit on the ice with Cross because he's going to work with other guys too. And he's going to see other players and maybe somebody will catch his eye. So I think it's really motivational for the other kids in the room. Absolutely. The last question I've got for you, Mike, is a situational question. You've got a 20-year-old on your team. He's a good player. He might be a leader, captain, something, and he's got a decision at the end of the year. And obviously, every kid's different. Every situation's different. But if he's in between playing minor pro, going to youth sport, where are you in that conversation? Not saying, do you choose one or the other, but how do you approach those conversations? Is that something that you work with them on or they're on their own or because obviously we know what happens with your NHL talent and the high, high end guys. But what about the, the older, the veteran guys that might not be drafted? And how does that go? Well, you know about the education package. So we have a great education package. And if you've played four years in the league, you're going to get four years of books, tuition, and fees paid for if you don't become a pro. But what the WHL allows you to do is you have one year to go try pro. So you can go for a year and still keep your school money which I think is a, is a, it's great because it gives the player until they're 21, turning 22, a chance to say, this is going to work or it's not going to work. And you should know by then. So if a player has an opportunity, I tend to encourage them to take that year because they've worked hard for it. Yeah. And get a try. And then we connect them with all the youth sports programs that they're interested in, depending on where they live. And we've had more American kids go up to Canada and play with youth sports programs University of Alberta, Calgary, Lethbridge, UBC, because they can't play in the U.S., but they can play five years in Canada with with University of Hockey. So they can go up there and use their money in Canada, some of the great academic programs, and get their studies done, but also play really good hockey. It's a tough decision. It's hard, but it gets harder after the first year, because then if you do not use your school money, you lose it. So that becomes the most challenging decision you have. Am I going to make it? Have I given it enough time? Or should I go to university, get my schooling finished, and then maybe go to Europe or try the American League at that time? Right. The reason I was asking you specifically is I looked at your last three years of players, and you've got guys who are going straight to the NHL. You've got guys who are going AHL and working their way up to the NHL. You've sent guys to youth sport. It seems like at Portland, and I'm sure most teams, specifically at Portland, you, you seem to be sending players all over the place. Well, I think most teams in our league do. They do a really good job with Every team having three or four guys that are going to make the jump to the NHL or American League. Then they've got another cushion of guys that are in demand by the youth sports teams. And then some guys will just try the East Coast League, which has really improved. The East Coast League is not the East Coast League of old. It's a very, very good league, a stepping stone to the American League, and try that for a year and see where it takes them. One thing when you mentioned 20-year-olds, we're really big believers with our program that if we have 20-year-olds, we try to have our own guys who have come up through our program. And I think that that really makes your team. If you have kids that aren't really ready for pro hockey, they need another year in junior, but they're your guys. They're guys who have come up 17, 18, 19, have played with your program. Uh, They're so valuable to the coaches because they know your culture. They know the expectation and they really set a great standard. So we've had phenomenal 20-year-olds here. Some have went on to pro hockey. Other ones have gone on to youth sports completed their degrees. But when we've had our guys, guys who have come up to the Portland program, it's a real treat. I heard that I overheard this. They weren't talking to me. So I I could be botching this. But when I was at, I think it was Rocky Mountain last two years ago, this coach in front of me, and I'm not even sure which team he was, but it was in the Western League. And his comment about Portland was, I guess you guys beat them pretty bad the night before at their barn. And the guy put his hand down and he said, I don't know if this even makes sense to you, but he said, he goes, they kicked our ass. He goes, they beat us well. And he goes, and then I get a call the next morning from the rink manager who said that not only did they win and the kids were well-behaved and this and that, but he said the locker room was spotless and we didn't even really have to go in and clean it. And the guy was like, oh, it's just, he's like a double kick in the, you know. So, you know, to me, I I took that as saying, geez, you got some kids there that take pride. You know, this isn't the NHL. These guys are young. And for them to win a game on the road and then clean up the locker room, I I don't know. That sounds like a. Well, it's a culture thing, as you know. And I don't know if you've read the book Legacy. No. On the All Blacks, it's a phenomenal book. If, If you haven't read it, 
You have to read it. Your readers, I'm sure, have heard of it. It's called Legacy. So when New Zealand was slipping in rugby, they weren't the world power in rugby. They took a look at everything they did from top to bottom, and they said, we have to fix this. Our culture is slipping away. And the All Blacks are the All Blacks. They're the world power in rugby. Right. And for five years, their culture had slipped away. And so they came up with 15 staples of their culture and they got back to doing the things they do. And we have a saying in Portland, nobody cleans up after Portland. So if we go to a restaurant, we tidy up. If we're in a dressing room, we tidy up. Nobody cleans up after Portland. And I got that, borrowed it from the book Legacy because that was their mantra that when they're in a dressing room, you know, rugby players, there's cleats and there's mud and there's everything all over. They said, they call it sweep the sheds. So the older guys would clean up, sweep, they would actually sweep the dirt out of their dressing room area and clean up. And that was one of the things they got back to, their grassroots. And so as coaches, we're always boring and stealing. And so it's nice to hear that, but it's a thing that we believe we've got to leave the kids with, with life skills. And I would encourage everybody, read the book Legacy. If you're running a company or a program that has those 15 points can hit home in every area for any team. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I didn't realize that was a deliberate thing. I just thought that was kind of a funny story. You know, you overhear a lot of things when you're scouting a term, especially when you're in the rink for 14 hours, you hear all kinds of things. I, I just remember that story very vividly. But anyways, thank you so much for jumping on with us. I learned a lot personally from this and I know our viewers will too. And best of luck this season. Hopefully you guys avoid any of these COVID hindrances that have hit you this year and we'll be cheering for you. Well, thanks, Brendan. I appreciate it. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you.